service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. And that's the way a good driver is. He predicts things. He sees things way up the road and he makes his mind up on what he's going to do before he gets there. He can't wait till he get there. He, in other words, he sees something happen up the road you got to already know what you're going to do when you get there. The stories about Paul Newman are insane. He plowed his VW Beetle through a hedgerow in a red light and he was then decked by an arresting officer. He drank so many beers in a 24-hour period that they named a holiday after him. He flew missions on Navy torpedo bombers during World War II. He was a four-time national champion race car driver, a sport he didn't take up until he was almost 50, at a time when he was already known as one of Hollywood's most bankable stars who regularly appeared in great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of H&R trucking owner Eddie Lee Harrell in 1994. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to a clip from Carol Reed's Trapeze. And why would I play you that specific slice of Big Top Love Triangle Cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on July 8th, 1956. And that was the day that Paul Newman was arrested for drunk driving, resisting arrest, an assault, an arrest that nearly derailed his acting career just as it was beginning to take off. On this episode, 24 hours of beer, Navy torpedo bombers, race car drivers, resisting arrest, Paul Newman. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. The noise started small enough, gentle at first, like leaves rustling in the autumn breeze back home. 
or the surf lapping against the beach in Hawaii. But it wasn't gentle for long. It kept growing, louder, rushing in on him from all sides. He couldn't find the source, and panic gripped him, but he couldn't run from it. Strapped to his seat by some invisible harness, the sound so loud now he thought it might shatter his bones, and so close that it was vibrating inside his own head. And that's when he realized where the sound was actually coming from. That horrifying noise growing inside his skull, that sound, it was coming from him. Paul Newman was screaming his lungs out. A hand reached out across the table and tapped his shoulder, immediately pulling him out of his head and back into the present, where he wasn't actually screaming at all. July 8th, 1956. Paul Newman was sitting in the dining room of a Long Island restaurant with a buddy from Kenyon College. But his buddy's story about the beer-soaked glory days had suddenly come to a stop. He and his wife were now staring at Paul. Hey, Paul, you feeling okay? Paul looked down at his hand. He was gripping the neck of his beer bottle so tightly that his knuckles were white. He relaxed his grip and mumbled an excuse. It was past midnight on a rowdy Saturday night in this little neighborhood joint. And it seemed like every table was at least three rounds deep and the din of conversation was making his ears ring. Paul's buddy continued on with another story. This one about that night back in the day when Paul was crowned the Chuggalug King of Ohio by pounding 23 beers. Or was it 28? No, Paul corrected him. It was 24 beers in 24 hours. A feat now unofficially celebrated as Newman Day, if you can believe that. They laughed in the tension east. Enough that Paul Newman decided he was past beer now and raised his finger to order a scotch on the rocks from the bartender. Why not? They were here to celebrate, weren't they? His buddy Jim in town for the weekend, talking about the old days. Back in school, pounding beers, tossing pickup lines at every co-ed within a 20 mile radius and falling in love with theater. Theater was about the only thing Paul and Jim took seriously. Well, Paul took it seriously at least. Jim mostly used it as a way to meet girls. He ended up marrying one of them, a cute brunette whose dad had an accounting firm back in Shaker Heights. Paul got married and moved back to Shaker Heights too, but he never got over the acting bug. After a few years working at his family's sporting goods store, he applied to and was accepted into the drama program at Yale. From there, it was the prestigious actor's studio in New York City. Hard work and a lot of good luck had done the rest. And that's why they were out celebrating tonight. The movie Somebody Up There Likes Me had come out just a few days prior with Paul starring as real-life middleweight champion Rocky Graziano, whose rags-to-riches story made him a folk hero to millions. Now the reviews were in and Paul was a hit. Critics compared him to Brando. They said he had range, playing a character that was tough, funny, and pathetic all at once. Moviegoers were amazed at Paul's ability to mimic the mannerisms and movements of the famous fighter. Paul knew his luck was good. He knew he should be happy, but after that unsettling little daydream here in the restaurant, he was still feeling anxious. The noise, the crowd, the muggy July heat. 
it was all making him a nervous wreck. At that moment, the waiter reached over Paul's shoulder with that scotch he ordered. Paul, still on edge, jumped. The drink went everywhere. And every instinct in his body told him it was time to go. Now. Paul started for the exit, but the bartender blocked his path, yelling something about the check. Paul could hardly make out the words. He pulled a wad of bills from his pocket and threw them in the guy's face. And then he continued on a beeline toward the door. Jim and his wife quickly followed suit. They didn't ask any questions as they hopped into the back of Paul's VW Beetle convertible. Paul jammed the keys in the ignition. And the engine came to life with a roar. On the outside, this car looked like any other VW rolling off the assembly line. Under the hood, it was something else entirely. Paul had replaced the VW's tiny 55 horsepower engine with a massive Ford 351 V8. He loved driving the car around Long Island. Pull up next to bankers or lawyers in their Corvettes and their Porsches, rev his engine, and blow their fucking doors off as soon as the light turned green. Of course, putting that much torque behind a body that light had its downsides. It meant that even a small flick of the steering wheel could send the car sideways. Paul, his heart pounding and more than a few beers deep, was now behind the wheel and desperate to escape the panic growing in his chest. He peeled out of the parking lot and nearly ran down the bartender who was still chasing him. He pulled the wheel right and just missed ramming into a parked car. And he jerked the wheel back to the left with his foot still on the gas. The car swung sideways. It bounced off a tall hedge and he could hear the damn thing rip out of the ground. He yanked the wheel again, back on track, speeding away down this quiet neighborhood street. A few blocks later, Paul's eyes were attached to the rearview mirror, headlights closing in, then red and blue flashing, just what he needed. He complied, pulled over, and within seconds the cop was at his window, tapping. Paul rolled the window down, and he held out his driver's license. The cop ignored it. Please step out of the car, sir. Paul was still on edge. He opened the door but didn't move as he'd been instructed. He just glared up at the officer. The cop reached down for the sleeve on Paul's jacket and began pulling on it. He was trying to drag Paul Newman out of his car. Paul's heart was nearly bursting from his chest. He was cornered, nowhere to run. And this cop tugging on his arm like he wanted to rip it off. Paul's fear, his panic, his frustration, they all surged for a moment. Just like the sound of his own screaming had recently surged inside his own head. And before he could think, he raised both hands and shoved the cop right in the chest. Paul and the officer both froze for a beat, equally surprised by what had just happened. But the cop recovered fast. He squared up and punched Paul Newman right in the face. Paul went down in a heat. The cop was on top of him now. He kicked Paul in the ribs. He landed a blow to his head. And then the cuffs were on. Paul's college friend Jim and Jim's wife sat in the VW Beetle with their mouths wide open, shocked, watching as Paul Newman lay in the grass with his hands cuffed behind his back. The cop laughing to himself about how this big actor was no Rocky Graziano. Paul wondered what tomorrow's headlines would mean for his career. Then he wondered if his lucky streak was finally about to end.
bullshit. It's all a bunch of phony bullshit. The outburst reverberated through the tiny rehearsal studio in Hell's Kitchen. And the room didn't look like much. So small that it could barely hold the 15 folding chairs that formed a ring around the stage. Stage being more of a loose definition for the patch of bare wooden floor in the middle of the room. It didn't look like much, but it was one of the most prestigious acting schools in the country. The Actors Studio. Here, the legendary teacher Lee Strasberg held court with a handful of young talents each year. Strasberg was one of the original proponents of the method, which encouraged actors to draw upon emotions from real life in order to fully develop a character. Actors spent thousands of hours trying to channel authentic emotions into their performances. So to call something bullshit, AKA inauthentic, was the worst insult you could throw at a performer. So when the accusation flew across the room, it stopped Paul Newman in his tracks. He was performing a scene from Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, trying to bring to life the alcoholic ex-football star Brick. It was a tricky scene that required a range of emotion. Paul spent days trying to find the right balance for the scene. Now the reviews were in. The reviews of his peers, that is. And they were not good. Paul scanned the room to see who delivered this little bit of constructive criticism. There was Marilyn Monroe, conflict-averse as always, staring down at the floor. And there also was James Dean, who barely showed up to these sessions anymore, just rolling his eyes and winking. Harry Belafonte, he was there too, and he was all smiles. But Ben Gazzara met Paul with an intense stare. The young actor cleared his throat and repeated himself. It's bullshit, just a bunch of yelling. It's not real fear, that's not real anger. Gazzara, nearly 50 years before playing porn producer Jackie Treehorn in The Big Lebowski, was already an imposing presence. His performance as Brick in the Broadway version of Cat on a Hot Tin Roof earned him rave reviews so his words carried serious weight. Paul threw his hands in the air and looked toward Lee Strasberg. He hoped the director would come to his defense. Instead, Strasberg nodded his head in agreement. Paul, he asked in that clipped Austrian accent of his, what are you afraid of? Paul shrugged his shoulders. The only thing he could think to say was his mom's hairbrush. He could still remember the feeling when she whacked him across the head for stealing candy from the neighborhood store. That story drew some laughs from the class, but Lee Strasberg pushed on. Paul, dig deeper. What are you afraid of? What are you guilty about? Paul thought about mentioning his time in the Navy during the war, but he stopped. He didn't see much combat. Mostly just played cards and drank beer. He shrugged his shoulders and looked up blankly. He was a lucky guy. Lucky because he didn't have much to be afraid of. The class laughed again, but the director gave him a disappointed look before he dismissed them for the day. Paul walked out through the studio doors. If he couldn't find his anger a few minutes ago, he was having no trouble now. And the insults stung. The intense critiques always left him feeling raw and anxious. Outside, James Dean was waiting for him. He handed Paul a flask. Paul took a swig. The bourbon was warm. Dean patted Paul on the shoulder. You a good man. It's the method that's bullshit. James Dean, 
one of the youngest members of the group, had been ripped apart by his fellow actors one too many times. Now he was growing disillusioned with the process. Paul nodded in agreement, but deep in his gut, he didn't believe it. The method was working for him. Even though he'd already landed a Broadway role before he joined the actor's studio, he still felt like a sporting goods salesman compared with the real actors he auditioned against. James Dean had natural talent and charisma. Paul Newman had a pretty face, sure, but to make a character come to life, he had to do the work. And with all this work came progress. He was picking up more bit parts on stage and on television, and months ago, he nearly landed a role starring alongside James Dean in East of Eden. Since arriving in New York around the same time, James Dean and Paul Newman had been kindred spirits with a love for more. They rehearsed more, they drank more, they drove faster, they pushed each other, and for a time, they were inseparable. They shared so many scenes and so many women that some said they were lovers. But by 1955, Paul Newman was more focused on a gorgeous understudy he'd met named Joanne Woodward. He was sticking with the method too. And for the first time since they met, it felt like he and James Dean were heading in opposite directions. The two actors took another pull off the flask before hopping into separate cars and, as was their tradition, racing toward the Midtown Tunnel. Side by side, engines humming, they wove through New York traffic, each one daring the other to go a little faster. Paul picked up speed, and then Dean, that rebel, him too, and they were neck and neck, tearing ass for a half mile until they reached a stoplight, the unofficial finish line. Dean pulled up just a hair ahead. When the light turned green, he turned hard and sped off toward the village. Paul cruised straight ahead to the Midtown Tunnel. Long Island, and home. Home where Paul laid down in the bedroom staring at the ceiling fan. He drained a beer and put the empty next to a pile of others on a nearby table. He reflected on the day's failure, whether or not he belonged in the rarefied air of the actor's studio. Every year, thousands of hopefuls auditioned for that place. Out of the thousands, only about 50 were called back for a second audition. Out of that small group, only a handful were asked to join. Al Pacino had auditioned five times to get in, six times for Dustin Hoffman. In 1955, Paul Newman was too much of an unknown to even score an audition at all. It was only through his friend that he got in, asked by her to be a scene partner for her audition. He did it. His friend was turned down. Paul got the official letter inviting him to join. None of that made him feel any better, though, about his performance today. Determined to commit himself to the process, he closed his eyes and tried to dig deeper. The beer, though, it made his head swim. The sound of the ceiling fan was soothing. Soon, he was drifting off to sleep. He began to dream. Bright blue sky above him. Peaceful at first, until a familiar low rumbling began. He turned to look for the source, but he couldn't move his head. The bright blue sky from a moment ago was now blotted out by a thick blanket of darkness. The noise roared in his ears, as loud as a jet engine. It pressed up against his face. He tried to run, but he was frozen at the spot. He heard a voice screaming, pleading for help. Not just any voice, his voice. He was panicking. Smoke filled his lungs. He wondered if he was dying. If he was already dead, it was now in hell. 
and the flames were everywhere. And just when it felt like they might swallow him whole, a knock on the door woke him in a cold sweat. It was his wife, letting him know dinner was ready and his son was asking for him. Paul lay in bed for a minute longer watching the ceiling fan spin. The panic he felt in his bones was starting to recede, but it left behind the outlines of memory. Something he couldn't quite make out yet, but maybe something he could work at. James Dean never returned to the actor's studio after that day. But Paul Newman kept putting his head down and doing the work. He grinded through the grueling critiques, the exhausting rehearsals. He came home exhausted, drained, drained more beers too, stared at the ceiling fan and tried to fill in the outlines of this memory. That's what he was doing a few months later, drifting in and out of sleep when a phone rang and woke him up. He heard his wife pick it up. There was a muffled conversation and then her footsteps pounding down the hallway. She knocked on the door and handed him the phone. There had been a death, a tragic accident, one that would change Paul Newman's life forever. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. His foot mashed the gas pedal. The car shot forward like a rocket. It hugged the curves of the Pacific Coast Highway as the odometer buried in the red. Outside the window, the ocean sparkled in the distance. The morning fog was burning off. Blue sky was peeking through. The lookout point came into view just up ahead. Paul Newman slowed the car and pulled off the highway. He grabbed a beer from the glove box. Sitting on the hood of the muscular Mercedes 300 SL, he drained half the can in a single gulp. He took in the breathtaking ocean view and thought about his friend, James Dean. Six months ago, James Dean was racing down a California highway. He met some bad luck just a few hundred miles south of here, died in the fiery crash. Paul could hardly believe they'd never share another scene, another woman, or another race. It hurt even more to know that James Dean's bad luck kicked off the longest lucky streak of Paul Newman's young career. Weeks after the crash, Paul was a last-minute fill-in for Dean on a live television broadcast of Our Town. Then he replaced Dean as a boxer in a TV version of the Hemingway story, The Battler. That was the role that got him cast as Rocky Graziano in Somebody Up There Likes Me. Yet another role that was originally slated for James Dean. Right now, though, Paul was finishing up the final scenes of the military courtroom drama, The Rack, over at Travis Air Force Base near San Francisco. The movie told the story of an army officer who survives brutal torture in a North Korean POW camp, only to be accused of collaborating with the enemy when he returns home. And the part was a major test of Paul's developing acting skills. Could he get audiences to feel sympathy for his character? Could he carry the weight of long courtroom scenes? That's why he was out on the Pacific Highway this morning, using the method to try to tap into his own memories of the war, into his own survivor's guilt, which is probably why the memory of James Dean lay so heavy on his mind today. Paul closed his eyes and tried to take himself back. 1945, Paul's squadron had just been deployed, and the end of the war was in sight. 
He and the others spent most of their time drinking beer and playing bridge. A few times a week, they flew training missions to alleviate the boredom. The planes flew in three-man crews, a pilot, a bombardier, and a machine gunner on a reverse-mounted turret. Paul remembered the feel of the wind rushing through the gun turret, and the roar of the plane's engine. He remembered the weight of the machine gun and of the long belts of ammo he loaded into it. On their training missions, a pilot would fly out ahead of the squadron with a fabric target hanging below the plane. Paul flew those training missions time and time again. No matter how hard he worked, he hardly ever hit the target. Unlike Tommy. Tommy was the best shot in the squadron. A tough kid from Boston on the outside, he shared Paul's zany sense of humor. They also had the same height and build. They loved to drink, and they loved to play cards, even though Paul's luck always seemed to be better than Tommy's. But with his eyes closed, Paul could feel the sun on his face. In the distance, he heard a plane droning. He saw Tommy's face, and then the memory hit him. Hawaii, a brilliant summer day. Three weeks at Pearl Harbor already, with no sign of the enemy. Paul Newman and his squadron played what felt like thousands of games of cards. They downed hundreds of beers, waiting for their next order. Today, that order was to fly another training mission. Tommy grinned. Hey, Paul, you think you'll actually hit something this time? The entire squadron chuckled. Paul laughed right along with them. 50 shots into the Pacific Ocean was about as good as he could promise. The six Avenger planes took off and flew in tight formation out of the harbor and toward the open ocean. The exercise was simple. One by one, each plane would dip down to just 15 feet above the ocean surface. The gunners would fire 50 shots at the target before they pulled up and circled back. Paul's plane was first in line. He dropped in on the target. He took aim. He fired all 50 shots in his belt of ammunition. He didn't hit the target once. With his back to the cockpit in the turret position, Paul could see Tommy's plane drop down to fire. Tommy passed beneath him. One second later, Paul heard a cheer go up over the radio. Tommy laced 50 rounds right through the sleeve. The rest of the planes completed the exercise and the squadron began flying back to the base. Soon they would be back on the ground. Paul was looking forward to winning a few more bucks playing bridge. More cash meant more beer, and he could taste it already. The headwinds picked up. Paul's stomach lurched as the plane jerked him up and down. It roared so loud he could barely hear anything over the radio. He was nearing the base now. He watched Tommy's plane approach the runway. It passed once again out of his sight. And then suddenly, chatter over the radio, frantic calls. Pull up, pull up. Tommy's plane wasn't in alignment. Paul jerked his head to try to see what was happening, but the flight harness held him in place. All Paul could hear now was the wind roaring in his ears. The drone of the plane's engine, so loud it felt like it was rattling around in his skull. And then, the horrifying noise of metal on metal and a deafening explosion. Paul frantically craned his neck to see what was happening. He couldn't see Tommy at all. All he could make out was a thick cloud of black smoke. But then, as Paul's plane circled the runway, 
the wreckage finally came into view. Tommy's plane was bobbing in the water, ripped in half. Puddles of jet fuel were burning in the ocean, and the back half of the plane was already sinking. There was no sign of Tommy. Paul felt something stir in the pit of his gut, and then he let loose a blood-curdling scream. Paul Newman spent the next few weeks in a haze. Then came news that the war was over, and they were heading home. All of them except for Tommy. When Paul landed in California, he pushed the memory so deep it was almost forgotten. He came home and never spoke a word of it, and never thought about it, until now. It was washing over him once more. The fear, the agony, the guilt. It was this memory that unlocked Paul's powerful and moving performance in The Rack. It was a giant leap forward for the young actor, one that would help cement his status as a rising star when the film was released in the fall of 1956. Paul Newman had finally done what Lee Strasberg asked. He went deeper. He faced his memories. But as Paul would discover a few months later inside a Long Island jail cell, making peace with those memories, that would take more than the method. Tulsa, 1982. The engine of the souped-up Datsun 280Z rumbled, the deep, menacing growl, even while idling. The kid slipped into the passenger seat. Not a norm for a race car, but not out of the question for these Sports Car Club of America races. This is crazy that he, just a cub reporter for the sports section of the Tulsa World newspaper, was doing this. Sitting next to THE Paul Newman in the actor's race car. But maybe that's why Paul Newman agreed to it in the first place. The kid didn't want to interview a famous actor. The kid wanted to interview a race car driver. The guy whose team came in second at 24 Hours of Le Mans. The guy who won the SCCA National Championship and was looking to do it again. That's why Paul was in Tulsa in the first place. Competing at Hallett Racetrack and looking to lock up a trip to the National Championship in Atlanta. Paul liked the kids' racing questions. So many reporters wanted to talk about acting and it drove him fucking crazy. But this guy knew his stuff. It only took a few minutes of chatter before Paul was offering to let the kid ride along for one of his practice sessions. Now the kid was strapping himself into a harness in the passenger seat of Paul Newman's Datsun. He held the helmet in his lap and listened to the engine rumble. He wondered if this was such a good idea after all. Only a few minutes remained before Paul's assigned start time, and the kid was trying to squeeze in a few last questions. Mr. Newman, he asked, you didn't start racing until you were 47. What is it that makes you want to drive? Paul smiled. He knew the answer. Racing put him in the cockpit. Much like method acting gave him the tools to face his fears, but it didn't give him peace. After his bust in 1956 for driving through some shrubbery in a red light, only to give the arresting officer a hard time, his first marriage crumbled. He indulged in huge quantities of beer and scotch even after he married his second wife, Joanne Woodward, 
the woman he would stay married to for the rest of his life. But something changed after he attended driving school in 1969 while getting ready to play a race car driver in the movie Winning. He found a new way to shut out the world. Booze left him blurry. Racing made him feel sharp. It made him feel connected. And it made him feel at peace. Paul turned to the kid and grinned. Well, kid, it's like this. When you sit down in that car, whatever's rolling around in your head, it just goes right out the window. Paul looked over at the countdown timer. Two minutes to go before his session started. The kid played with the straps of the helmet still sitting in his lap. I won't really need this, will I? He asked, holding up the helmet. Just a practice session, right? Paul pulled his harness tight and looked straight ahead without answering. His mind was already on the track. The kid knew better than to ask again. He put on the helmet and pulled his harness tighter. He was glad he did too. When seconds later, the car was flying down the first straightaway into a hairpin left turn. He felt the car sliding as it turned. He felt the helmet clattering against the car's steel roll cage and he was glad it wasn't his skull. As the car straightened out, the kid looked over at Paul Newman. His famous blue eyes were locked on the road. He didn't look angry or scared. He looked at peace. At 54 years old, Paul Newman's second act was just beginning. He won his first Academy Award for Best Acting in 1986 at age 61. He won his final professional race in 2006 at age 81. This after nearly running his car and his career off the road decades prior, way back in 56. But he kept it between the lines and eventually rode off into the sunset. Not everyone gets so lucky. The kind of luck that ought to be in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis.